All right, we are doing a series of studies together on the subject of the biblical covenants. We've looked at the Noahic covenant, we've looked at the Abrahamic covenant, we've looked at the Old Covenant, and recently we are looking at the Davidic covenant. And the Davidic covenant, of course, was first established in 2 Samuel 7, 12 to 16. And in that covenant, God uh, made three promises to David. First thing he promised him is that he would never lack a son to sit on his throne and that his throne would be established forever. So David would always have a son, uh, a grandson, a great-grandson, in essence, uh, a single dynasty sitting on the throne of Israel, and they would sit on that throne forever and ever and ever and ever without end. And then the second promise that he made to David is that his son that sat on his throne would be the son of God in a very unique sense. And so uh, God, God said of, of David's son that he will be my son. And uh, of course, we saw uh, how that was fulfilled um, in, in Solomon, but ultimately in the Lord Jesus. And then the third promise, of course, is that his son would build him a house. And... Um, so, uh, because David was not allowed to build God a house. So these are the three promises. And so they were fulfilled in Solomon and in the kings that flowed out of Solomon, Rehoboam and, and that whole dynasty that flowed out. And uh, David always had a son sitting on the throne of Israel. Uh, his sons were, were specially owned by God as being his special sons and uh, with his special blessing on them. And uh, his son, of course, Solomon, did build him a house. But ultimately, the Davidic covenant is fulfilled in David's greater son, who is the Lord Jesus Christ. He, of course, sits on the throne of David literally forever. He is God's son in a very special, unique way, uh, by, by way of eternal sonship and by way of incarnated sonship. And then, of course, he is building God a house, which is uh, the, the, the new covenant church, which is the new covenant temple. And so consequently, um, that was why we had the memory verse we had today is that he says, ye collectively as a body, as a church, when you meet together, you are the temple of the living God. Now, of course, each of us individually are, are temples of God in that the Holy Spirit indwells us. Okay. But as we gather together as a body, collectively, he says, ye, not you individually, but ye, plural, collectively, form or, or become the temple of the living God as you gather together. So what we see then, is the, and, and as we've seen as we've studied together, is that the Davidic covenant was ultimately and finally fulfilled in Christ, just like the promises of the Abrahamic covenant were ultimately and finally fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And so uh, we looked um, at Luke chapter 1, verses 30 to 33, and we saw that when the angel um, appeared to Mary and told her that she was going to have a baby, um, he said uh, regarding that baby that he shall be great and shall be called the son of the highest, and the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. So we're specifically told by the angel at the Annunciation to Mary that uh, Jesus was going to sit 
on the throne of David forever. He was going to rule over the house of Jacob forever. And then we looked at uh, further passages uh, that declared that Jesus uh, in his life and death and resurrection and ascension to heaven, being seated on the throne at the right hand of the Father, was the fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. So we looked at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 13, Acts chapter 15, Ephesians 2, 1 Corinthians 3, and many other passages to show that the Lord Jesus Christ uh, was in fact the fulfillment of the promises contained in the Davidic covenant. And that brings us then to our lesson today. Now, since Christ was to sit on David's throne, and since Christ was to be the son of David, we would then expect that there would be many parallels between David and Christ. And uh, indeed there are. Uh, David desired to build God a house, and Jesus desired to build God a house. And of course, we know that uh, David was not allowed to build God a house, uh, but in fact, Jesus did uh, fulfill his desire and build God a house. In Matthew 16, 18, Jesus said, Upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. And of course, we've seen from our previous studies that the church is the new covenant temple. And so David desired to build the temple. The Lord Jesus Christ desired to build a, a house of God, which is the church of the living God. And that's precisely what he did. We also see that David was a righteous king who ruled over the old covenant people of God. And Christ is also a righteous king who rules over the new covenant people of God. It says in Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, a scepter of righteousness is the scepter of your kingdom. Now, of course, David wasn't perfectly righteous. We know that there was an episode or two in his life in which he seriously departed from being righteous. But nevertheless, the dominating characteristic of his rule was a righteous rule. And of course, the rule of the Lord Jesus was perfectly righteous. Furthermore, we see that not only did they both desire to build a house, not only were they both uh, righteous kings, David a righteous king over the old covenant people of God and Christ a righteous king over the new covenant people of God. We also saw that David was a shepherd king. You remember that he was a shepherd and he was taken from following the sheepfold and, and exalted to being a king over Israel. And David was many times called the shepherd of Israel uh, because of the tender uh, care of uh, protection and provision and leading and feeding uh, that he gave to um, the people of Israel. Well, of course, Jesus too was a shepherd king and um, he rules his people. Uh, they're often called sheep. He says in John chapter 10, uh, the good shepherd gives his life for the sheep. Um, and so we see that Jesus is gathering his sheep. And so like David, uh, Jesus is also a shepherd king. And then we saw that David was especially anointed by God to be the king of Israel. You remember that Samuel called him out and he anointed him with a special anointing oil uh, in which God, through Samuel the prophet, declared that this is my anointed. This is the one I have specially marked out to be uh, my king over my people Israel. And then, of course, Jesus Christ was also especially anointed by God with the Holy Spirit to be the king of Israel. 
In Acts chapter 10, and in verse 38, Peter is preaching uh, to Cornelius, um, and uh, he says regarding the Lord Jesus Christ in Acts chapter 10, uh, in verse 38, he says, God anointed Jesus of Nazareth with the Holy Ghost and with power, who went about doing good and healing all that were oppressed to the devil, for God was with him. And so we see that David was the anointed king, Jesus was the anointed king, that anointing took place uh, when uh, he was baptized by John the Baptist. You remember that the Holy Spirit came down in the form of a dove on him, and the voice of God spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I'm well pleased, hear him. And so uh, we see that there were all these parallels, and we would expect that to be the case, that, that David foreshadowed uh, the Lord Jesus, who was David's son, who was the ultimate fulfillment of the Davidic covenant, and who sat upon David's throne. Now, it is for these reasons that we run across passages like Philippians chapter 2. So turn there, please, in your Bibles, if you would, the book of Philippians chapter 2. <clears throat> In Philippians chapter 2, after describing Christ's incarnation, his death on the cross, uh, and his uh, saving work that was accomplished there, he says in Philippians 2 and verse 9, Wherefore God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of things in heaven and things in earth, and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And so the imagery that is here is that after Jesus' death, he of course was resurrected, he ascended into heaven, he sat on the, on the throne of David at the right hand of the Father, he's highly exalted, and as a result of his kingly authority and rule, every knee bows to him because he is the King of kings and he is the Lord of lords. And so this exaltation, uh, this, this resurrection, ascension, and exaltation to heaven that Jesus accomplished was in fact a fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. We saw from Acts 2 and Acts 13 uh, that the inspired author specifically declared that the resurrection, ascension, and exaltation of Jesus at the right hand of the Father was the fulfillment of the promise of the enthronement of the Son of David on the throne of David um, in heaven. And so uh, what we have then uh, in the New Testament uh, upon the completion of the finished work of Jesus is an enthroned king. Now, we talked previously about him being a prophet and being a priest and, and the Old Covenant uh, foreshadowing of that uh, in, in, the, uh, in, in um, Melchizedek and, and then, of course, in, in the animal sacrifices that were there and that Jesus, of course, became uh, the perfect sacrifice. But it is through the Davidic Covenant that we discover that he is um, uh, a king. Now, the fact that Jesus is a son of David ruling over the kingdom, is what gives then the New Testament this profound emphasis on the subject of the kingdom of God, or if you will, the kingdom of heaven, same thing. And so we 
read in the Bible that Jesus was going to be a king. And when you have a king, you wind up with what? A kingdom. And so God, for example, says in Psalm 2, he says, I have, I have set my king upon my holy hill of Zion. And so Jesus is God's appointed king that sits upon the throne. We saw previously in Isaiah 9, 6, and 7, unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and what? The government shall be upon his shoulder. He shall be called Wonderful Counselor, um, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince. The Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. Where? Upon the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. So we see in the Old Testament that it was going to be a son of David who was going to take the government of David and he was going to rule and reign in relationship to that. And so what did John the Baptist do uh, when he was preaching? He says, repent, Matthew chapter 3, verses 1 to 2. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. And so what we see in the Bible is this tremendous emphasis on the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom, the kingdom. You read about it dozens and dozens, literally in dozens of times in the New Testament. And uh, the reason why there's all this emphasis on the kingdom is because we have a king. And we have a king who's sitting on the throne of David. And we have a king who is fulfilling all of the promises made to David in the Davidic covenant. And so we have this massive teaching on, in the New Testament on the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Because the angel declared to Mary, um, you know, he shall be great. And he shall sit upon the throne of his father David. Uh, and he shall rule over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom there shall be no end. So if you've got a king, guess what? You wind up with a kingdom. Now, there is a lot of phony baloney teaching running around on the subject of the kingdom of God. And uh, people try to make it more complicated than it really is. And what we have to understand is that the kingdom of God is simply the sphere over which the king reigns. Um, the king of England reigns over what? England. Okay? And so his kingdom is defined by the sphere over which he rules. And so the kingdom of God is the sphere over which Jesus Christ rules. And what is that? Well, the answer is twofold. He rules over the world in general, and he rules over the church in particular. So he has a general rule over the world, and he has a very intensive and focused rule over the church, and he rules the world, and he rules the church, but he rules the world for the benefit of the church. Now let's look at two passages that help us understand the limits and the focus of the kingdom of God. First one is in Ephesians chapter 1. The book of Ephesians chapter 1. <clears throat> In Ephesians chapter 1, um, 
Uh, Ephesians 1 is an interesting chapter. It's, one, it's, it's like two big, long, run-on sentences. <laughs> and um, anyway, he's praying for the people. And uh, let's start out at verse 18. He prays that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling and what the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. Verse 19, what is the exceeding greatness of his power toward us who believe according to the working of his mighty power. Now start to focus. Which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places. Now, when the Lord Jesus is set at the right hand of the Father, that's code language for he's sitting on the throne of David, okay, in fulfillment of the Davidic covenant. And we've seen that in Acts uh, 2 and Acts 13. Um, Okay, verse 20, which he wrought in Christ when he raised him from the dead and set him at his own right hand in the heavenly places, far above all principality and power and might and dominion and every name that is named, not only in this world, but also in that which is to come and has put all things under his feet. Now let's stop there for a second. That's pretty broad. Covers like the whole universe throughout all time, right? So what we see here is that he, verse 22, God the Father has put all things under the feet of God the Son, now notice the special focus, verse 22b, and gave him to be the head over all things to the church, or with reference to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him that fills all in all. That was a great deal in that passage, but the point I want to make is that God has given in this huge sphere of rule over all things, all people, all nations, and then with a special focus over the church. Now, for an even more clear passage, let's go to John chapter 17 and verse 2. The Gospel of John, chapter 17. This is a Jesus' high priestly prayer. And... Um, it's just before he's going to be crucified. Now notice John 17, 1. These words spoke Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify thy son that thy son also may glorify thee. Now here's our verse. As thou hast given him power or authority over how much? All flesh. Jesus Christ is the king over every single human being on the face of the earth that ever has lived, is living, or will live. God has given him power or authority, exousia is the word in the original, over all flesh. Why? In order that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. So you notice the broad reach and the special focus. Okay, the breadth of the kingdom is Jesus has authority over all flesh. For what purpose? For the purpose of giving eternal life to his elect, to all those whom the Father has given to him, all those for whom he died, all those that he's calling to himself. 
So God has given Jesus authority over all people for the purpose that as he works among all those people, his providential will in the process of that providence, in the operation of his general and his saving grace, he gives eternal life to all of those that the Father has given to him. Verse 3, and this is life eternal that they might know thee, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom thou hast sent. So what is the kingdom of God? Answer, the kingdom of God is the sphere over which the king rules. What sphere does the king rule over? He rules over all flesh in general. He rules over the church in particular. And so um, what the king is doing is he is taking his uh, smaller kingdom, which is the church, and he's expanding that by taking people out of the world, which is called the kingdom of darkness, and he's bringing them into the church, which is called the kingdom of light. So what we find then is, is all this kingdom teaching. And all this kingdom teaching doesn't make a bit of sense if we don't have a king. And when we think about our king, we think about, well, why is he a king? And, and, and where does his kingship come from? And the answer is, it all flows out of the Davidic covenant. Now let's turn to Matthew chapter 13. The gospel of Matthew is preeminently the gospel of the kingdom of God. The concept of the kingdom of God appears more frequently in the gospel of Matthew than it does in any of the other gospels or in the epistles. And so it is a real focal point for us learning about the kingdom of God. And Matthew 13 is the epicenter of the gospel of Matthew with reference to the teaching of the subject of the kingdom of God. And what we want to do is take one section out of this chapter, beginning at verse 24, and uh, then we're going to look at Christ's own personal interpretation of it. Now notice Matthew 13, 24. Another parable put Jesus forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven. Now, mark it down, people. The kingdom of heaven and the kingdom of God are exactly the same thing. A lot of people try to build a distinction on them. There is no distinction. They are uh, synonymous with one another. Um, the kingdom of heaven uh, is simply... Uh, a reference to the place from which Christ rules. The kingdom of God is simply a reference to the person that does the ruling. And so the place and the person, the person is Jesus, the place is heaven. That's where he sits on the throne at the right hand of Father. The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God are synonymous. All right, now notice, if you will, verse 24. Another parable put he forth unto them, saying, The kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in the field. Now he's going to tell a story, a parable. But while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares among the wheat uh, and went his way. And when the blade was sprung up and brought forth fruit, then appeared the tares also. So the servants of the householder came and said to him, Sir, didst not thou sow good seed in thy field? From whence hath it tares? And he said unto them, An enemy hath done this. The servants said unto him, Wilt thou that we go and gather them up? But he said, No, lest while you gather up the tares, you root up also the wheat with them. Let both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of the harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. 
And you might be sitting there saying, what in the world does that mean? Well, fortunately, Jesus told us exactly what he meant by this illustrative story, this parable that he told. And he reveals the meaning to us in verse 37. Uh, in verse 36, it says, Jesus sent the multitude away and went to his house and his disciples came to him saying, declare unto us, explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. He answered and said unto him, he that sows the good seed is the son of man. The field is the world. The good seed are the children of the kingdom. The tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil, the harvest is the end of the world, and the reapers are the angels. As therefore the tares are gathered and burned in the fire, so shall it be at the end of this world. The Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity, and shall cast them into a furnace of fire, and there shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father, who has ears to hear, let him hear. Now, if you were paying real close attention, you saw that the word kingdom was used three different ways in that passage. Notice, first of all, he says, verse 37, He that soweth the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, the good seed are the children of the kingdom. So what is the kingdom of God there? It's all the saved people, right? All the saved people that are in the world, the kingdom of God. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the world. The reapers are the angels. Therefore, the tares are gathered and burned in the fire. So shall it be in the end of the world. And the son of man shall send forth his angels and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend and then much do iniquity. See, people who offend and people who do iniquity are in his kingdom. But previously he said, the good seed are the kingdom. So we see the two ideas of the kingdom here, right? The kingdom is the whole world, tares and wheat, because out of God's kingdom, those that offend are, are, are pulled, they're taken. But then the kingdom is also the good seed, that is the elect, God's saved people. Now, then we see the eternal kingdom, Verse 42, she shall cast him into the furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. And this is the eschatological kingdom, the eternal kingdom, the kingdom that occurs after the coming of Jesus Christ in which uh, there's 100% righteousness. So now we have uh, a kingdom of God, which encompasses all people saved and lost. We have a kingdom of God, which encompasses just the saved. And then we have, of course, the eternal kingdom, which will be just the saved forever revealed without any possibility of there ever being any tares or unsaved people among them forever. So the point is, is that the kingdom is here now and the kingdom has yet to come. The kingdom is here now in terms of this broad kingdom of all flesh, this narrower kingdom of the church. But the eschatological kingdom has yet to come. And that's why Jesus taught us to pray in, in, in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come. Thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Has that been answered yet? It is not. I mean, God's will is not done on earth now as it is in heaven. But it will be. Right? In the new heavens and the new earth, it sure will be. That prayer will be answered. And so, as we pray, we're looking for the eschatological or the future kingdom while dwelling in the kingdom of God as defined by the church and the larger world over which Jesus himself rules. Now, the idea that the kingdom is both present and future, both small and large, is what constitutes a lot of confusion among people's minds about the teaching of the kingdom of God. But when we understand it in a biblical framework, we understand, well, well, that word makes perfect sense. It's just like the word law. It's just like the word world. These are words that are used several different ways. And if we understand those ways in the context in which they're being used, there's no confusion. But if we try to make them all say the same thing in every context, we have a mess on our hands, don't we? So when you're looking at this phrase, the kingdom of God, um, you know, you have to ask yourself, well, what aspect of the kingdom is being spoken of here? The larger kingdom, the more focused kingdom, the eschatological kingdom. And when you answer that question, then you uh, understand the passage and it all makes perfect sense. Now our time is gone. We're going to pick up from here and go forward next time. And we're going to talk about the kingdom of darkness. That is Satan's realm and rule. And does he have his own kingdom? Or is there a king over that kingdom too? <laughs> and of course, if Jesus didn't rule over the king of darkness and his kingdom, we'd be in trouble, wouldn't we? Uh, but the fact is that that's part of the all flesh over which he rules. That's part of his kingdom that contains things that offend and them which do iniquity. And it's the kingdom that Jesus is invading. The gates of hell are not prevailing as they're assaulted. And we are taking captive uh, his people out of his kingdom and bringing them into the kingdom of light. He loses subjects uh, and Jesus gains them, but Jesus never loses subjects uh, because all those that are saved are, uh, of course, preserved and persevere. All right. And then we're going to talk about preaching the gospel of the kingdom. And salvation means being brought into the kingdom. And then if we're subjects of the king and we're in the kingdom, that's where our citizenship is. How does that affect how we live? Uh, and in relationship to our civil government, who's our real king? Is it our president, our senators, our judges? Or is it the Lord Jesus? And how does that work out in the area of civil disobedience or not? So we have to understand, and this all flows out of the Davidic covenant. So you can see the covenants are really, really important in, in understanding the scriptures and uh, how it, it ties all this stuff together. All right, we're out of time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that we have a king and we have a kingdom. And Lord, you have given to us this wonderful um, nation, this holy nation, uh, this peculiar people among which uh, we live. Lord, we pray that you would help us to live uh, according to the principles of that kingdom, knowing that our Jesus is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And yes, there's other kings and lords, but he is supreme over them all. Father, may they bow and kiss his feet um, and be wise, uh, lest he be angry. And they perish from the way when his wrath is kindled but a little. Bless, Father, the teaching of your word in the next hour and the worship that we offer. Receive it, Father, as we offer it with goodwill and sincerity. May the blood of Jesus cleanse it and present it faultless before you. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.